Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Welcome to The Science of Motherhood. My name is Dr. Renee White, and this is episode 62 of The Science of Motherhood. And we have got a wonderful guest for you today talking about fertility. And we decided that there's just so much information that needs to be relayed to mamas-to-be and their families that we've actually split this episode into two. So the first part today's is going to be all around the myths and misconceptions of IVF. And then we're going to take a deep dive into the science behind IVF. And you will hear from our guest today how important the science is. And so we thought It would be remiss of us to try and jam everything into one episode, so we've decided to split it. Now, fertility is something, you know, all the way down one end of the spectrum for us. It's those kind of early days where people are getting a lot of information around pregnancy and conception and I think you know once we are pregnant we're all so familiar with those apps that give us an update on what size fruit or vegetable our babies are um, as they grow in our bellies and there's been studies around this that a lot of women seek out information during pregnancy but there appears to be a serious decline when it comes to postpartum there's you know not a lot of research is being invested into that and there appears to be kind of a I'm just going to wing it attitude now if you have listened to episode three of this podcast you will know that I was definitely one of those women (laughs) I could honestly tell you exactly what was going on every month with my baby as she grew in my belly but I took no notice and I had no preconceived thoughts, ideas, planning or anything like that when it came to my postpartum. And boy, was I wrong. Um, I think I had two lots of spaghetti bolognese frozen in the freezer and I thought, that'll be fine. I'm going to be home all the time with my beautiful girl. And so I'm going to have all of this time to make beautiful nourishing meals again very very wrong (laughs) and so that is where people like myself and our team of doulas in our FYC or fill your cup village help people like yourself who maybe haven't planned for postpartum or actually are really investing in that fourth trimester life and want someone to be there to nurture you and nourish you and hear about your experiences and help you normalize that transition into motherhood. We know from the research that there are four things that women need um, as they enter 
their kind of matrescence or that transition from a maiden to a mother, the first thing is information. Women need information around what's it going to be like and am am I expecting this, that or the other. We need to empower ourselves with education and arguably, like, you know, that is why we started this podcast. The second thing that women need is psychological support. There is an uptick in feelings of loneliness and incidences of depression in postpartum. And so psychological support is paramount. The third thing, and I would say is arguably one of the most important, is the sharing of experiences. And I recently read um, an article published by a Belgium researcher, an epidemiologist, and she had this wonderful quote they were investigating about the maternal needs following childbirth. And she wrote that, and I'm going to quote her here, her name's Dr. Justine Slomian. She said, the concept of normality seems very important in this period of life. Sharing experiences helps mothers to address this fear of abnormality. This step seems to be very important in the appropriation of the role of a mother. And I think that's so true. The ability to share our experiences is an opportunity for us to normalise events and occurrences and behaviours, both for yourself as well as your new baby. And it's given us the opportunity then to go, actually, no, that's totally fine. I'm not the only person in the world experiencing that. And some people may have a great network of friends and family to be able to share their experiences and others may not. And that is definitely one of the things that we find as postpartum doulas that we give our clients an opportunity to share their experiences in a really safe and non-judgmental format. You know, we're there at their house every week cooking and preparing meals and helping support them along that journey of motherhood. The fourth and final thing that the research has shown us that mums need following childbirth is practical and material support. And I don't need to tell you twice, that is absolutely what a postpartum doula does for mothers during that fourth trimester. So we are there holding your baby while you go have a nice hot shower. We give you opportunities for self-care, whatever that looks like for you. It could be I had a client the other day who, you know, all she wanted to do was just go sit down and watch her favourite show that she always had time to do pre-baby, but she just hadn't had an opportunity to do that without holding a baby or, you know, things like that, visitors over and and the like. So whilst I was there cooking a beautiful meal, I was making sure that Bubby was, you know, safe and in a good sleeping position and they were having a nice little rest and mum was you know in front of the tv enjoying a show and laughing her head off and it was just it was great it was great for her to kind of just step back into that quote unquote old life where she was able to relax and and just kind of enjoy herself so if you think that that sounds amazing and if you would like some further information on how our postpartum doulas can assist you with thriving in your fourth trimester 
feel free to reach out to us at ifillyourcup.com. We service Melbourne, Hobart, Sydney and Queensland. And hopefully we can be part of your journey as a new mum. So without further ado, I am going to introduce our guest for today's podcast. Dr. Manuela Toledo is the medical director of TAS IVF. She is a caring and highly regarded CREI, which you will all hear me in the interview (laughs) extrapolate what that acronym actually means. But essentially, she's a very, very highly skilled, qualified fertility specialist. She's the only CREI qualified fertility specialist in Tasmania, and that is the highest level that you could possibly get in the area of reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So you will absolutely hear in this interview that Manuela's approach to her fertility patients is very holistic. She applies her extensive experience in fertility and the genetics of reproductive medicine, as well as her serious passion for lifestyle and nutrition and dietetics. Manuela is interested in all aspects of infertility and she has a really keen interest in fertility preservation and complementary medicine in fertility care. And that fertility preservation is something that we're really going to deep dive into in, in part two around the science of how IVF actually works. So after graduating from the University of Melbourne, she completed her residency at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Manuela specialised in obstetrics and gynaecology and became a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists in 2004. She is currently a board member of the Fertility Society of Australia and prior to becoming TAS IVF Medical Director in 2021, Manuela was a full-time fertility clinician at Melbourne IVF. If anyone would like to reach out directly to Manuela, you can find her at tasivf, T-A-S-I-V-F dot com dot A-U. You can get in touch with them there to book in an interview with her to discuss any fertility-related issues that um, you foresee. So as I said, this is part one with Manuela. We go through myth-busting. I think it's about five or six kind of really top myths that I see time and time again fluff on the internet. Um, And so once and for all, we have debunked it. We played a little bit of a game of fact versus fiction. And I have no doubt that if you are on that journey of trying to conceive you are going to find this just an amazing episode. Manuela is at the top of her game. She is well known for getting people in who are getting kind of second and third consults. She is just a master. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Dr. Manuela Toledo. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Manuela Toledo. How are you? I'm very well. Hello, Renee. Lovely to be here. So everyone would have heard from the introduction that you are the medical director of TAS IVF. You are also the only 
Certificate in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Qualified Fertility Specialist in Tasmania. God, that was that, a mouthful. That, that is a mouthful, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I'm the only, the only CREI qualified specialist in Tasmania at the moment, which is, which is very exciting um, that we've actually got a CREI qualified person down here in Tasmania. We have a number of really good fertility specialists that, that I work with. We're a great little team down here at TAS IVF. Um, but uh, the idea is that ideally you would like an IVF unit led by a CREI qualified specialist um, for the for the complex infertility and the second opinions and uh, just to make sure everyone's qualifications and standards are, are up, up to speed. Mm, yes. And so we have decided that because this is such a huge topic, fertility, that we are going to split this into two parts, which I think all the listeners will be like, yay. So if there is something in between episodes, listeners, that you would love to um, kind of be questions around that for Manuela, please feel free to reach out via our website or our social media. And I'll make sure that I put that into the second part of our interview. But today we're going to focus on the myths and misconceptions. And that is essentially the crux of our podcast, always has been at the Science of Motherhood, because there is quite a lot of fluff out there, we call it. And so we want to use this platform to better educate and empower women and their families along that kind of pregnancy and postpartum journey. So, Manuela, you are going to really kind of entertain me with my hot seat of questions around myths and misconceptions. And Looking forward to it. A few along the way because, obviously, you are at the coalface and so you deal with, obviously, a lot of the questions. But I think thought to just straight off the bat, IVF, one of the myths that I always hear, and tell me if it's a myth or not, is that IVF is only reserved for infertile couples. Is that a fact or a myth? That's a a really good question to kick off with, (laughs) Renee. Um, So IVF is is ideally or was was conceived for couples that could not conceive naturally. And when IVF was first developed over 40 years ago, because we all know the first IVF baby, Louise Brown, was born in 1978. So she's now 43 and has three children of her own who incidentally were all not conceived by IVF. So that's mm. great. The, the generation of Babies born to IVF mums are not necessarily IVF conceived themselves. But when it was first conceived, it was really a way of helping women with blocked tubes or with absent tubes. And so ideally the the IVF patient would be someone who was medically infertile, Mm -hmm. which is a horrible term, but it Mm. it basically means that you're not getting pregnant by yourself. And, And the common reason for that was blocked tubes often due to pelvic inflammatory disease, endometriosis, having had an ectopic pregnancy and lost your tubes that way. So there were a variety of reasons. Nowadays, however, there are people who do IVF electively, meaning there is no indication other than that they need to do IVF to, say, freeze their eggs for the future. So you might have someone in their early 30s who's not ready to have a baby or not in a stable enough relationship who will freeze eggs in her early 30s 
and come back in her early 40s to have a baby. Now, that's considered elective. So she's not really medically infertile. Yeah. And um, she's doing this as a way of preserving her fertility, which is a very valid reason to do IVF. So you don't have to have medical infertility to do IVF. But I think it's probably fair to say that the majority of women and couples doing IVF are doing it for an underlying medical reason, including unexplained infertility. We see up to 30% of couples who present with unexplained infertility, which means we do all the testing and on paper everything looks great and they should have been pregnant 12 months ago, but they're not and we can't explain it. And the treatment for unexplained infertility, especially when it's prolonged more than 18 months, is IVF treatment. Um, So we would see unexplained infertility as a medical indication for IVF treatment, even though we can't actually put our finger on what is exactly wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, just touching on, you know, freezing your eggs as a woman, like as you said, you get to your early 30s and you're thinking, I mean, they haven't found the right person or I think I have, but we're not sure if we want to have a baby yet. What's the percentage these days of women freezing eggs, I guess, for that kind of security for the long term? It's it's becoming way more common. I mean, I remember when I was uh, working in this field a decade ago, it would be very rare for someone to electively freeze eggs that means freeze them without a medical indication we've been freezing eggs for women facing chemotherapy or surgery that's going to uh, impair their fertility in the future we've been freezing eggs for them for medical reasons for Mm -hmm. more than a decade Mm -hmm. so that's something that's really quite established but freezing eggs for women who are thinking ahead to the future that's really come to the forefront in the last five years and the percentage is steadily on the increase so Maybe it was 1% to 2% of our IVF cycles five years ago and now it's more like 10% of our IVF cycles. Okay. The issue with, with freezing eggs electively is that we can never guarantee you that the eggs that we freeze will make a baby, just like when you start trying to conceive with a partner We can't give you a guarantee that you'll be pregnant because one in five couples experience infertility. It's Mm -hmm. very, very common being infertile. And so it's the same thing when we freeze your eggs. We'll freeze them and we'll tell you about the quality of your eggs when we froze them. But the ultimate test of egg quality is how they fertilise when they meet the sperm. And that often is not going to happen for another few years down the track, if at all. Yeah. And and then we actually see, and then, of course, the sperm quality comes into it as well. So there's many, many ingredients, if you like, that go into making a healthy baby. And the egg is a very important part, but it's only one cog in the wheel, so to speak. There's so many other factors that come into it. The other issue with elective egg freezing is that we're doing it much later than our peers in the US, for instance. Okay. So in the US, it's it's almost like a rite of passage. Women are freezing eggs in their 20s. They're doing it. Oh, wow. Often they're donating eggs when they're in their early 20s to pay for their college fees, and I'm not necessarily supportive of that, but that's what's happening over there. I and did not know that. <laughs> are also then taking that opportunity to freeze their own eggs. And the younger you are when you freeze your eggs, the more likely they will produce a healthy pregnancy. A lot of the women we're seeing down here in the Southern Hemisphere 
in Australia are freezing eggs well into their 30s. And often it's almost an afterthought. You know, they reach 35 and someone says, oh, you know, you're getting to that age, you should be thinking about having a baby. And they sort of think, oh, maybe I should go along and talk to someone about this. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you freeze eggs at 35, 36, you're not going to get quite as many as you would have at 25, 26. Yeah. The problem is, of course, most women in their 20s, it's not something they're really thinking about. They're, no. They're too busy doing other things and having relationships and, well, hopefully travelling an hour in a, a kind of almost post-COVID world. But I think it will become more common to see younger women in their late 20s, early 30s freezing eggs, and that's something we're encouraging. So if you're sort of thinking you might want to freeze eggs, yeah, you're actually better off doing it sooner rather than later. Mm. But a lot of women need that extra time to think about it. We're we're not encouraging egg freezing over the age of 40. And and I'm going to say that because you said I could add some things in. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really important message to get out there. Can we freeze eggs for you at 41, 42? Of course we can. Are they going to make a healthy baby? Probably not. And, Mm. And I say that somewhat reluctantly because hope is such an important part of all of this. Yeah. I'm not saying to someone don't freeze eggs at 42, but if you're 36 and you're thinking you might want to freeze eggs, please don't put it off until you're 42. Yeah. Because at 36 your chances are just so much better than they will be at 42. We estimate that if you freeze your eggs when you're 36 or under, we will probably get a pregnancy for every 10 eggs you freeze. And you you notice how I'm saying that quite carefully. I'm yeah. Not, you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sort of signing any guarantees. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a healthy, non-smoking woman, 36 or under, if we get 10 mature eggs, which we often do, then we're pretty confident we're going to get a pregnancy from that batch. Mm. If you're over 36, you have to double that number. You need 20 eggs. Wow. Frozen to not guarantee your pregnancy because we still can't guarantee it, but for us to say, well, you've got 20 eggs, it's probably okay and you'll probably get a pregnancy out of this batch. So the older the are, you are the more eggs you need to increase your opportunity of a pregnancy in the future and that's what this just is providing more opportunities yeah giving you a bit of a backup because plan a is always ideally conceiving with a partner or with a donor mm-hmm. um and and going the natural way you know the last thing we want to do is be doing ivf on people who don't need it Yes, absolutely. You've kind of, you've covered my second myth, which which is you can do IVF at any age. Mm, um, so That's a great of, one. I love that because the answer is you probably can attempt IVF. Yes, but it may not be successful and your chance, it's a, it's a numbers game, right? That, that, that's exactly it. And we have a lot of women doing IVF in their early 40s who are successful. Yeah. But these are women who are using their own eggs now with a partner or with a donor. Mm-hmm. And so we're fertilising fresh eggs. We're not freezing them first and storing right. them for the future. And I'm not implying that freezing does anything bad to your eggs. It doesn't. Yeah. But a few eggs won't survive the freezing. Yeah. And so you you do get a bit of a loss, a bit of an attrition. And if you freeze your eggs, you really don't know how good they are until you go to use them yeah. a few years later. Yeah. Whereas if you're using your fresh eggs at 41, 40, 42, we can give you that feedback immediately. 
Yes. This is what yes. your eggs were like. This is what the maturity was. This is how they fertilized. Did they fertilize normally or not? Did they develop normally? Uh, what is your chance of pregnancy based on the fertilized egg or embryo that we have for you? So you just get that real-time feedback yeah. when you're doing IVF. Once you get to 45, it's it's difficult to have a pregnancy with your own eggs, both naturally and with IVF. And probably at 44, 45, you really lose that edge that that IVF gives you when you're a little bit younger. So at 44, 45, if there are no sperm factors and you're having sex on a regular basis and you've got regular cycles and you don't have any other health concerns, then probably whether you're trying naturally at home on a regular basis or whether you're doing IVF with us, it's really unsure whether IVF is giving you that edge. Once you turn 46, we strongly encourage you to start thinking about using a donor egg because the chance of pregnancy with a younger egg is just so much better than with your own 45-year-old egg. Yeah. And once you hit 50, we're really not keen for you to be pregnant. So, yes, women in their 50s have IVF, uh, especially overseas. You'll, you know, there's always some story uh, about it out there. And I think the oldest woman who had IVF, of course, with a donor egg, was well into her 60s. Um, is that ideal? Well, not really, because if you have a baby with IVF when you're 60, you're going to be 81 and hopefully still around when your IVF baby becomes an adult and turns mm. 21. Mm. Is that ideal? I don't know the answer to that. I think I, I think the majority of society would say you want to be around until your child's 25. I, th- I think that would be a reasonable assumption. Yeah. Not that anyone can plan the future and sometimes yeah. things happen. We're pretty keen on people not doing IVF after the age of 50. Yeah. Are there exceptions to the rule? There's always exceptions. But generally speaking, we really want you to sit down with a counsellor and think about is, is this a good thing for me? Is this a good thing for my partner if you have one? Is this a good thing for, for the baby? Because that's mm. important too. Yeah. If you have a baby at 50, I think it's likely you'll be around in your 70s to see them become a young adult. That's probably okay. But beyond that, I think um, most people would agree maybe maybe you're getting a little bit too old mm. beyond the age of your early 50s. Yeah. So can you do IVF at any age? <laughs> well, technically, yes. Technically, yes. <laughs> but there's um, a few other things. It's a whole different question. Yeah. And um, I might use this opportunity to also just say we don't want you to be too young when you do IVF. You know, we don't yeah, want to do so IVF that on other a end of the spectrum. Exactly. We don't want to do IVF on a couple in their early to mid-20s who've maybe only been trying for eight months and a little bit time poor and, and they're very keen to have a baby. But I, I, I do try to send those, those couples away and give them a little bit more time because, as I said a bit earlier, we don't want to be seen to be doing IVF on people who don't, who don't need it. Mm, yes. And that is a fantastic segue to my myth number three, which I know we've <laughs> spoken about <laughs> offline. Weight and lifestyle factors have no impact on IVF results. Yeah, no, they have an enormous <laughs> impact. They have an enormous impact. And I'm so glad you brought this up, Renee, because it's it's kind of my hobby horse a bit. Mm. Weight and lifestyle, I suspect about one in four patients I see, if they had an ideal healthy lifestyle and a normal weight, that they probably would not need to be seeing me. 
Mm. Um, and so they're another group where I really encourage patients who are grossly overweight, heavy smokers, heavy alcohol intake, high sugar intake, high junk food diet, low hydration levels, high soft drinks, you know, all those things mm. that we know yeah. are, are yeah. bad for you. They do affect your fertility. They affect your egg and your sperm. Do people get away with it? Of course people get away with it. We only see the people here in our IVF clinic that don't get away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I sell, tell someone to stop smoking, the first thing I hear is, oh, my neighbour smokes and she has four children. Right. Uh, of course people get away with it, but you are not getting away with it and that's why you're seeing me for mm-hmm. fertility consultation. Mm-hmm. Very, very keen for those people to go away and change their lifestyle. And that, Renee, is really hard. A lot of people find that harder than doing IVF Mm. because we kind of have this mindset where I'll go to a doctor and they'll give me a script for medication and then I'll get what I want from that medication. Mm -hmm. But with IVF, you don't. You know, when, when we do do IVF on these patients because either they just have tried and they can't lose weight or they just can't give up the junk food diet or they tell us they stopped smoking but really they haven't, when we do IVF on them, we can see it in the lab. You know, the sperm don't swim well, the eggs look dark and unhealthy, they're fragile, they don't cope well with the fertilisation. There's all these telltale signs that that we can see in the lab and it's very clear to us that, that patients haven't implemented the lifestyle changes that we've recommended. Yeah. I'd love to just touch on this because I know in part two that we're going to deep dive into like the science side of things because I'm a complete science nerd. But I so just want to... <laughs> <laughs> you've just like had like this spark in my head where I was like, okay, I want to talk about this because, again, I don't know if everyone knows this, but obviously sperm are generated... How often versus eggs, women are born with, a like, that's it. You're born yes. with the number of eggs that you have, right? So I, I guess if you were to say to a patient who came in and, you know, they're that kind of classic high smoke, high alcohol, bad food diet, poor exercise, in terms of that egg quality and sperm quality, how quickly can you see a change in the eggs, given the fact that what we have is what we have versus sperm, which is kind of regenerated? Like I would kind of think in my head, is the damage done with the eggs versus mm. something like sperm, which is continually regenerated? And so, you know, if there's a change in lifestyle, there'll be a change in like the next generation of sperm production. Does that make sense? So, yeah, it does. And and the good news is that change comes about very quickly. I mean, okay. you're, you're talking about change in the matter of weeks or months. Wow. Now, okay. Start off with the sperm. Sper- new sperm is generated every 85 days. Okay. So if you have a heavy smoker and he walks out of your office and says, okay, you've convinced me I am going to stop smoking right now then 85 days from that point in time, so about three months, you're going to get smoke-free, lovely, high-quality sperm Mm -hmm. that is highly likely to be accepted by an egg because, Renee, the egg chooses the sperm, not the other way around. So the sperm has to be super-duper and on its best behaviour for the egg to want to select it both naturally but also with IVF. 
Mm. And in IVF, of course, we also have that option of looking under the microscope and picking out the best sperm, which is what we do for couples. It's called ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And we do that for couples where we need to make sure because there's not that much sperm that we pick out the best ones. Yeah. So every 85 days, new batch of sperm come through. So, So you can change your sperm quality and behaviour in a matter of 85 days, which, you know, I think is pretty quick when you think about it. The hard thing is having the will to do it and then actually implementing it. Mm -hmm. You're right, women are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, so you have more eggs as a a toddler than you do as a 25-year-old, which Mm -hmm. completely doesn't make sense, but maybe it does because four or 500 years ago, you know, women were having babies when they were in their early teens. Yes. 200 years ago, women were having babies in their mid to late teens. Mm. Even 50 years ago, our mothers were having babies in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. And by the time they were in their late 20s, they were considered elderly mm. first-time mothers. So that biology has not changed. Our society and our social expectations and wanting to have it all when you're in your 40s, that, that's the big thing that's changed. Yeah. Women now are, of course, we're having careers and we're having our education and, you know, we're also wanting to have our babies, but because it's really hard to do everything at the same time, uh, as most mums out there will know, Yeah, a lot of women are then sort of saying, look, once I've done all that and I've got the house and I've got the suitable partner, because not, let's not forget about that, you do ideally want a suitable partner and you want it to be Mr. Right rather than Mr. Almost Right right or Not Quite Right. (laughs) And and often you are in your late 30s, early 40s by the time you hit that that point. But your eggs, what have they been doing since you were a toddler? They've just been ageing. They've been sitting in your little ovaries. They've been ageing. And if you are a smoker or have high alcohol intake or a high junk food and high sugar fat diet or you're grossly overweight or you don't exercise, or you're constantly in a a state of dehydration, then all you've done is you've uh, um, accelerated that ageing process. Mm. So a a 40-year-old who's never smoked will normally have pretty good eggs and we can work with them in the IVF lab. A 40-year-old who's smoked since she was in her early 20s, you know, we're we're probably not going to get there. That's the reality of it because not only has she aged her eggs more rapidly, so they're now acting like a woman in her late 40s, she's also basically killed them off. So the eggs have started dying off more rapidly. So it's, you know, men and women are very different in case anyone was wondering about that, especially in this age of everything's unisex and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to not focus on genders, but the reality is that biologically men and women or females and males are very, very different, especially when it comes to fertility. Mm. So a woman in her mid-30s is at her peak fertility and, in fact, just passing her peak fertility. A man in his mid-30s is going to be able to father children if he's healthy for the next one, two, three Four decades mm. and that's why women are freezing eggs so that they can kind of keep up with that yeah and if they don't meet Mr Wright or their partner's not ready to have a baby for another 10 years then at least they've got some eggs on ice that that they may be able to fall back on yeah okay 
So does that mean like any, well, I don't want to say any because it's quite a definitive word, but lifestyle and diet changes for women, are we going to see a change in egg quality if if that, if the damage is done? Yeah, look, it's really hard. It's really hard to measure because with the men, they produce a sperm specimen and we look at it under the microscope and then we give them that feedback. With women, it's not that straightforward. Sure. But when you look anecdotally at women who've completely changed their life around and stopped smoking and lost the weight and have a really good diet and maybe they're seeing a dietitian or a naturopath who's supporting them in that quest. But it's very hard to do these things by yourself. We do often see when they come back for round two of IVF, the egg quality is better in the sense that they get more eggs, the eggs fertilise better, and we're more likely to get a pregnancy. So it's it's a little bit more anecdotal than it is yeah. with the men. Um, yeah. And ideal, of course, is if you if you have both partners, if you've got coming through as a couple, if you have both partners doing the same thing, um, then then those are the couples that tend to do really really well. But ideally, I want you to do all of that before you come to see me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, okay. I don't want to be the one to tell you that. So that's why you know that's why doing a podcast like this is really great because. I don't want to treat a patient who doesn't need me. Mm. I just want to treat the people who are already doing everything right out there and they're still not getting pregnant. So they're falling into that 30, 40% of patients with the unexplained infertility or they've got genuine underlying genetic medical issues like diabetes, heart disease, lung disease. Mm. You know, they've got genuine issues for which they're taking medication and it's just slowing everything down. Right. So, so they're kind of the ones we would ideally like to see. But, hey, if you've got to come and see me and I've got to tell you all of these things I'm telling you in the podcast now, so be it, that's fine. But I'd much rather you go and get pregnant naturally if you can yeah, and not spend all that time, effort and money. Mm, um, we're going to touch on, on the money in a minute. <laughs> on, a, on a treatment, on a treatment that maybe you didn't need because that's very frustrating as well. Yeah, I'm curious to know just on the diet, if there's any particular, I guess, micronutrients or food, particular food sources that would assist infertility? Because mm, so we, we really see like, this yes. out there. Yeah, and we really like foods that are high in antioxidants. Okay. So all the all the green leafy vegetables and the dark fruits like the berries, we're in berry season now, you know, they're full of antioxidants. Can you buy antioxidants over the shelf? Of course you can, and, and all the naturopaths prescribe them. And uh, the, the really common one a lot of people would know about is the coenzyme Q10, which has been used in a lot of studies, and, and that's great. But the fact is you can get all that in your diet. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we can supplement you, but we would much rather you have it in your diet as well as giving you the supplements. Minimal alcohol, minimal sugar, water should be your main fluid intake. A cup of coffee a day is fine. A cup of tea a day is fine. You know, enjoy it, but it shouldn't be your main fluid intake. Yeah. And really we're talking about most food groups, mm -hmm. you know, just picking at most food groups um, and, and enjoying what you eat. I see women who've been told, oh, you can't drink coffee while you're trying to get pregnant. And I say mm -hmm. to them, well, this is not about torturing yourself. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You know, if you enjoy a good quality cup of coffee once a day, have it. That's great. If you enjoy a little bit, you know, half a bar of dark chocolate uh, every couple of days, that's fine. 
But your main staple diet should consist of a wide variety. And really in Australia, it's very hard to, to, you know, you don't have to have a bad diet. Mm. We have a lot of farmer's markets. We have a lot of seasonal fruits and vegetables and you can just go with the seasons. Um, and it's just thinking about, about what you're eating. We're such a takeaway society. You know, we're so time poor. Uh, and junk food has just become such a big part of our diet and it's full of sugar yes. and it's full of empty calories and it's got nothing in there like an antioxidant. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the other thing I might say as well is especially the couples with unexplained infertility, just make not make sure that you're not actually gluten intolerant. You, okay. you may actually be a celiac. You may have celiac disease and be gluten intolerant and not be aware of it. And a lot of these people, when they do then switch to a, a gluten-free or lower gluten diet, they, they come back and, and not only are they often pregnant naturally because mm. you become more fertile, but they also say they just feel so much better. Like they didn't realise that that they were all that tiredness and sluggishness was actually related to the fact that they were gluten intolerant. And What's going on there? Like I, I'm just, my brain is just like how... And all all of those things, when you think about it, your metabolism controls your fertility to a certain extent. So if your metabolism is out of whack because you're on an incorrect diet, um, then, of course, that's going to affect your fertility. And all of these things we've talked about up until now, all of this can be done with an interested dietitian or a naturopath or an interested GP. Like you don't need to come and see a fertility specialist for that. Mm. But we don't really turn people away. Like if you want to come in and, and have that discussion with us, that's fine. Um, but, again, you, you may not need to. You could see your interested GP. And we have some very good GPs who refer to us who've kind of done all of that already. So that by the time the patient comes to us, we, we've kind of ticked all the boxes and it's pretty clear that they do need to move on to some fertility treatment. Mm. Okay, Manuela, we're going to talk about price <laughs> because everything myth, has a price the yes, myth no, is that right. IVF is expensive and I guess yes and the first thing I'd say IVF technology is expensive that is absolutely correct and when our grandmothers I suppose were doing IVF in the 70s and early 80s the chance of being pregnant with IVF was one percent wow Okay, so 100 women in the 70s and 80s who were doing IVF, one to two of them would get pregnant. When we do IVF now in a couple where, you know, there's no other major factors that we've identified and and all those health issues we've just spoken about when we've taken care of all of that, your chance of pregnancy, depending on your age, is around 40%. Mm-hmm. every time you do an IVF cycle. So if you start IVF in January and you do a cycle every month, then theoretically, statistically speaking, you should be pregnant by April. Now, again, that's not a guarantee yeah. because when we do IVF, often we find things, especially in those couples who have supposed unexplained infertility, suddenly when we're looking at the eggs and the sperm in the lab, we realise there's actually something going on right. that, that we didn't see prior but roughly speaking, every time you have a fertilised egg transfer back inside your uterus, your chance of pregnancy is around 30 to 
If you're younger, it can be over 50%. Mm-hmm. If you're over 40, it might be more like 25%. Mm-hmm. But roughly speaking, you're looking at a 30 to 40% success rate every time you do a round of IVF compared to 1% to 2% in the 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. Why is that happening? Is it because us doctors are getting really good at what we're doing? I wish <laughs> I could say that, but no, I think what I'm doing now is very similar to what my colleagues were doing you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's probably quite different to what we were doing 30, 40 years ago. Mm. But the real chance of success lies with the technology and the IVF lab that you are using. So 70% of the chance of success is related to what is going on in the lab. And we have this saying, the magic happens in the lab. And that is absolutely true. And you often don't see the lab as a patient and you don't necessarily see the scientists. You know, they're all pottering away behind the scene, but but that is really the really important part. And so as a, as a clinician, as a fertility specialist, I rely heavily on the lab. Um, and when the two work together well, that's when you're getting the really good pregnancy rates. But technology is expensive and um, things like microscopes, um, we use very particular types of microscopes. We have to be able to manipulate the egg and the sperm, so we need very specific magnifications with all the little attachments. Um, and most recently, a lot of us are now using the closed incubator systems, the embryoscopes, so the little embryos, once the egg's been fertilised, are undisturbed for five days. In the olden days, we used to use the so-called mink incubators where every day we'd have to open the incubator and close it again and check the embryos and, and add culture medium or take culture medium away. And every time you had that temperature fluctuation, it would affect the quality and the development of the embryo. So all of those things... And then, of course, there's the training of the scientists. You can't just have anyone come in and, and work in a lab. You need someone who is highly qualified but also highly trained and probably being highly trained is the more important part. And some scientists have a really good knack for it and yep. maybe some scientists not so good. So you've got to make sure that it's your highly trained scientists who are doing all the injection of the sperm into the egg and checking the embryos and doing the embryo biopsies for the genetic testing. And then, of course, there's the whole genetic testing component that has really evolved, especially in the last decade. So it's IVF technology, as we said at the beginning, is expensive. And then, of course, there's the overheads. I mean, the running an IVF lab and an IVF unit is an ex- incredibly expensive undertaking. We're so lucky in... Australia in the sense that you can't just open your own IVF lab. Mm. You have to have the appropriate qualifications. We talked a bit about the CREI at the beginning. Every IVF unit has to have at least one CREI certified fertility specialist running it. And the lab staff have to have certain qualifications and training. And then you all the overheads, you've got to have a clinic. You, we have a purpose-built lab here at Kaz IVF. Um, you know, you can't have insects coming in and out. You yeah. need to have suction sealed doors. Uh, you need to have a very stable environment, both in the lab and in the incubators that we use. And all of that costs a lot of money, yeah. basically. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then at the end of it all, of course, you want the trained fertility specialists and the trained nurses. Um, and, again, we're very lucky at Tazavia. We have incredibly experienced nursing staff here who most of them have been working here for a long, long time. 
and are very good at giving appropriate and timely advice to our patients. But all of that costs a lot of money. Um, everything we do, we do under ultrasound control and ultrasounds, one ultrasound machine itself, you know, starts off at about twenty, thirty thousand dollars and then it just goes upwards into the hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So it's it, it's it's one area where also you don't want to cut corners. No, I don't think any of any of my patients or any of your listeners out there, those who are going to go on and do IVF, I don't think you would want to think that you were going to a clinic where there weren't qualified staff, yeah, or where they didn't have up to date equipment, or where the lab wasn't sealed off to to have a, a conducive environment for embryo development development or where we weren't using the up-to-date microscopes or embryoscopes. I don't think any patient yeah. having IVF would want that. No. But if you cut corners or if you don't invest in new equipment, then you will keep costs down, but it does affect the pregnancy rates, unfortunately. So the main reason, in a nutshell, that the that it's become more expensive is because the technology has improved yes. and because most of the big IVF units like TAS IVF, which is part of Virtus Health, most of the big units um, have invested and keep investing in the new technology to be up to date all the time. Mm. It's considered standard of care now. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, could we could we say that like all IVF clinics are not the same and for people to make sure that they do their research? I, I think it is important to do your research. I think it's really important to have a doc, a fertility specialist or a doctor that you trust yeah. who can talk you through those things because all those things I've just discussed, you should be able to ask your fertility specialist. Right. So you should be able to say to them, do you have a dedicated lab environment for your embryos? Do you have embryo scopes? Do you update in the latest technology? You know, do you use embryo glue? Do you do ultrasound guided embryo transfers? Like they're all questions that patients ask me every week. And I say, well, of course we do. This is standard of care. Yeah. Um, and, and a good fertility specialist should be able to discuss every aspect of your treatment with you. It's not a secret what we do in the lab. Um, but but that really is where where the success rates lie, and that's where we continue to invest in and update. Uh, and that's why it's so important for us to see what's going on around the world. And that's why doctors go to international meetings, not to you know go on a golfing holiday. Yeah. <laughs> but it really is to make sure that here in Australia we are doing what's happening in the US and in Europe and the UK. And the great thing is that. Having IVF in Australia, your outcome is just as good as if you went to the US. Mm. The difference between here and the US is that in the US it's much easier to get egg and sperm donors uh, and the egg donors especially are much, much younger than the ones here because right. in the US they're allowed to pay the donors whereas we don't do that here. Here it has to be altruistic. So the donors have to donate um, out of the goodness of their heart and they're not allowed to be paid for it in commercial terms mm, that's very so there's a lot there but do i wish <laughs> ivf was cheaper of course i do uh, and then of course you've got the medicare funding so a certain proportion of medicare is fund uh, of ivf is funded by medicare mm -hmm. but there is a limit to the medicare funding there's a there's a cap on how much they can fund yeah um and that is really a broader discussion for our politicians and the public at large as to how much IVF should be funded. In a way, we're quite lucky. We do get some funded 
IVF, uh, which is great. In the US, there is very limited funding of IVF and its user pay pretty much for everything, which is why it's so much more expensive over there. It's not that their cycles are more expensive. It's just that they're not getting Medicare funding like you are here. Gotcha. Oh, that's very interesting. I Yeah, I kind of assumed that with the US that people were getting paid for their donations. De- definitely, but, but you also then have a wider variety of choice. So we have our own donor egg bank here at TAS IVF and it's made up of, of lovely women who have donated and they're doing it and they're not getting paid for it and they're doing it on their own time and they're coming in and they're having sedation to have their eggs extracted and they're doing it because they genuinely want to help another person or couple have a family. And that's lovely, but there's only so many women out there um, who, who are willing to donate altruistically. With sperm donors, it's a little bit less complex in the sense that it's a little bit easier to provide a sperm specimen than it is to extract eggs from someone but still they're also doing it you know at their own expense and their own and time and effort Mm. Um, and so that's why we don't have quite as many donors here as you do overseas yeah okay I've got one last myth to bust IVF causes you to have multiple births fact or fiction Yeah, that's a really good one. And and look, it was true in the olden days, you know, when when the IVF success rate was 1% to 2%, the the way you increase the success rate was if you had more than one egg, you would transfer multiple fertilised eggs back into a woman's uterus Mm -hmm. and that would increase the chance of a singleton but it also increased the chance of a multiple now, here in Australia, 90% of our embryo transfers are done with a single egg. So okay. the chance of a multiple pregnancy is related to the chance of that one egg splitting into two. And in IVF, a one egg splitting into two happens one in 200 women. Now, just because you start off with an identical twin pregnancy doesn't mean you're going to end up with one because, unfortunately, a lot of those do miscarry. Twin pregnancies are more likely to miscarry, which is another reason why we're not keen on multiple pregnancies. Um, But in nature, um, there's a 1 in 250 chance of having an identical twin pregnancy where you've made one egg and it's split into two after fertilisation. Some women naturally ovulate multiple eggs, so... Uh, when you get twins or triplets, they could have been spontaneously conceived. Triplets in IVF are very rare because it's very rare for us to put back more than one egg. Occasionally we'll put back two fertilised eggs in a very specific situations, maybe in the older woman where her second egg is just not strong enough to freeze for another day, things like that. Uh, the twinning rate is is very, very low. It's like 0.01%, something like that. Right. And the the sorry, that was the triplet rate. And the twinning rate is is between sort of varies between three to five percent, depending on which unit you're talking about. But compare that to the US. I was gonna ask you because the US is a completely different is 30 to 40 percent. So we're talking about twinning rate here, three to five percent, US 30 to 40 percent. Why? Very simple and very sad. No Medicare funding, you're paying for the whole 
cycle out of pocket, which in some cases is up to twenty thousand US dollars, and you're having only one go at it because you're not going to be able to afford it. And so patients are saying to their doctors, "Doctor, we're only doing this once. I want you to put back two, three, four embryos." And unbelievably, in twenty twenty three, that's what's happening. But look, look, I think it's fair to say the US is a is a whole different story. And I do say to a lot of my patients, when you're on social media and you're looking at at, you know, people on social media comparing their egg numbers. A lot of the stuff we see on social media is out of the US okay. and, and it's a different planet yeah. in many ways, but especially when it comes to reproductive medicine. So you've got to be a little bit careful. Yeah. They really go for the high egg numbers and, and the high fertilisation rates and putting back lots of embryos. And I know from the very few patients I've had over the years who've had twins or even uh, triplets on on one occasion where unbelievably an egg split three ways, is that common? No. Should you go and buy a Tats Lotto ticket? Probably. If that's happened to you, like we're talking really rare stuff here. Because you may need the money to pay for all the children. <laughs> but, but it's hard work. It, like, yeah. like people do it and, and you get away with it, but the... The pregnancy is difficult, the labour is difficult, you often end up with a caesarean, you often end up with premature babies, which in itself has inherent risks, and and then, of course, you're bringing up your twins or triplets and there's a lot of cost, emotional, uh, psychological, financial cost that goes into it. So it's um, ideally um, we do one fertilised egg at a time, we're getting good pregnancy rates, 30 to 40% per cycle doing that. And we're getting a healthy mom with a healthy pregnancy and she can work throughout the pregnancy if she wants to and she can do all those things she would normally do and she's not, uh, you know, having to, to deliver prematurely. So we're very lucky here. Our IVF patients, I think, are very lucky here um, that the chances are if you do IVF in Australia, you will end up with a single pregnancy mm-hmm. uh, and that is considered standard of care and that is considered good medicine. So, yes, in the past and overseas, still high twinning rates, but now really not anymore at all. Mm. Well, they were the last of my myths to bust. I want to throw, I guess, the ball in your court, Manuela. Are there any yes. other things that crop up in the clinic that you constantly see that you would love the listeners to finally hear the truth on i i think one of the one of the big things that that we see is that when a couple are not getting pregnant the the woman tends to always blame herself yeah. and i don't know if this is a gender thing and i know we're moving away from gender in our society at the moment but it seems to me that a lot of women do put the blame or the pressure on themselves and I think it's really important for everyone out there to realize that fertility is a couple issue Mm -hmm. so for the for the couples who are trying naturally out there of course we also see uh, a lot of single women who want to be single mums we see a lot of same-sex couples who want to be parents and of course they're not going to be able to conceive naturally for obvious reasons and they do need to access fertility. But for a lot of the heterosexual couples we see, you know, this is a couple's issue. And ideally we like to see you as a couple. Mm -hmm. So it's very common for me to do a first consult with just the female partner. 
that that is very very common and I always find it a bit perplexing because this is a couple's issue and maybe the men also think oh it's the woman's issue but it's not so that so I think that's a really good one to get out there that you know you know you live together as a couple you're trying to have a baby as a couple and your fertility treatment is as a couple as well and if you really want to make it work and you want to be that 30 to 40 percent and you want to get out of our clinic you know as quickly as possible with a healthy pregnancy then you want to engage as a couple yeah I love that yeah because it is as you were saying before, it is the egg and the sperm and they both need to come together. And exactly. I, I also kind of feel like, you know, when we do our prenatal sessions with our families, some of the, sometimes the mamas say to me, oh, you know, should should we um, organise for my partner to be there? And I'm like, absolutely, they yes, are part yes. of They're this whole They're definitely program. part of it. They're <laughs> definitely part of it. And IVF, as we've alluded to during during this session, is quite complex um, and it's constantly changing and the technology is changing and there's a lot in it. And if you, as a partner, are engaged right from the beginning, you'll understand what's going off. Mm. You know, it's really interesting, Renee, that often we don't really see the male partners engage until there's been a negative outcome or, the, or maybe maybe they're not pregnant with their first IVF cycle. Yeah, You know, that's when we see the the partners engaging and they suddenly realise, oh, my God, I've actually got to get involved in this and start understanding what's going on. Yeah, And that's fine, better late than never. But I would encourage all the couples out there to engage as a couple and that means that you don't have the one partner trying to explain to the other partner what's going on, which is always difficult, trying to recall what your fertility specialist said to you. Yeah. Uh, but, But ultimately... We are. We have an open door policy here. If you want to come in and just have a confidential chat, you know, because some couples just aren't on the same page. You know, the, the one partner really wants to do something and is concerned and the other partner is like, yeah, no, we just give it a bit more time, which, you know, if you're the concerned female, sure, your male partner, yes, he does have another two decades under his belt mm-hmm. you don't have that you you know if you're 35 you realistically got another three to five years max if, to give this a really good go yeah so but we always encourage people to come in and have a chat but ultimately if you want to do fertility treatment and you want it to work then you both need to engage yeah that's been wonderful um manuela we're gonna rapid fire now to um wrap up this particular part. Great, great questions, by the way. Very good questions. <laughs> thank, you. So thank you. <laughs> okay, here we go. What is your top tip for mothers or mums to be? Yes, I was just going to ask you that. Mothers <laughs> or mums to be? My my top tip is if you know you're going to be a mum and you've hit thirty five and you're not seeing any pregnancy on the horizon for a variety of reasons, work, partner, what's going on in our society, you know, world events, come and talk to us. Come and talk to us. We're not going to push you into IVF treatment. We're not going to push you into freezing eggs. But the number of women I see in their early 40s who say, I wish someone had explained to me Mm. that my fertility declines and I wish someone had explained to me all the options available to me and that also goes for mothers who are thinking about a second or third or fourth child and often my first question to a couple or a person will be how many children do you want because Mm -hmm. if you're 32 and you want one that's fine 
But if you're 38 and you want three children, we've got to get our skates on right yeah. now and you've yeah. just got to be fully aware of what your options and, and what the possibilities are for you. Mm, great. I love that. I just did a big post on the fact that we're one and done and how we came to that decision-making and a lot of people were very interested in how we kind it's, of decided it's whole, that. It's a whole other podcast actually. Oh, God, yes. But, but it is important. <laughs> you know, ultimately you never quite know until, until you, you really know. know. That's what I found, but, yeah. But it's about having having the discussion. Yeah, 100%. Okay, second question. What is your go-to resource? Do you have a book or a workshop or something like that for, you know, mums-to-be, any kind of resource? A lot of IVF clinics have support groups mm-hmm. um, related to the, to the IVF clinic, and we've had some really good feedback. So I think a support group is great. Be very careful about the online support groups from overseas. So if you're in a support group, and here I am calling the US out again, but but I have to because there's such a huge industry with IVF and they're very vocal and present on social media, just be really careful that the support group makes sense for you, you know, Mm -hmm. ideally local or at least Australian based. And a support group it's a bit like when you're pregnant, everyone tells you their pregnancy journey, but that's not necessarily your journey. Mm-hmm. So you take the good and the bad and, and you maybe use it to build up your knowledge, but but it doesn't mean it's going to be your journey. So so the woman who's had 10 IVF cycles, there's usually a reason for that and it, yeah. it's probably not your reason and it's not going to be your outcome. I do think support groups are good. Um, I have a lot of patients say to me that they have a colleague, a friend, a neighbour who's gone through fertility treatment because, remember, at the beginning we said one in five couples experience mm-hmm. infertility is very common. People are becoming very open about talking about it, which is great. And a, and a lot of my patients tell me they find it really helpful to talk to someone who's been through it themselves. Yeah. So if you can have a support network and if you can't find a support network, talk to us about it and we can point you in the right direction depending on which clinic you're affiliated with and and which state you're in, where in Australia you are. Um, But there's nothing like sharing uh, knowledge and advice with, with other people who've gone through something similar and you'll learn something while you're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. No matter where you are in your journey, I think, you know, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, sharing experiences is, it can be just life changing for you. It can. Normalize what you're going through. And Um, often to find out that what you've experienced is actually quite common. Yeah. Or in fact, it's quite rare and it was sort of something quite random that happened to you that's unlikely to repeat and was a bit of almost, bad luck yeah but but just to be able to normalize what's happened and verbalize it because often people feel like I'm the only one feeling this and in actual fact what they're feeling or experiencing is really very common yeah um our last question which we always ask our guests and we've nabbed this one from Renee Brown what do you keep on your bedside table Oh, that's a really <laughs> nice question. Well, I always have two books on my bedside table. And the reason I have two is because I definitely always want to read. 
Mm-hmm. Um, at night, it's the only thing that really settles my brain down. So no matter how busy or stressful or joyous a day has been, I just need that half hour with my favourite book of the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's usually something related to historical events because mm-hmm. I am very interested not just in the past history of IVF, which is absolutely fascinating, and we could do a whole podcast just yes. on that. <laughs> but also I'm really interested in historical events as as a whole. So it puts you into a different time and space and it gives you perspective, which I think in, in this area that we're working in is actually very, very important is to have perspective and to be able to step back and 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 look at what's going on in a, in an objective manner. What's your favourite book or is there something that you're reading at the moment that you'd like to share? So at the moment I'm reading Testament of Youth by Vera Brittain who was a World War I nurse and essentially lost all of her male contemporaries, her brother, her fiancé, her cousin and several male friends in World War I. Uh, and then after World War One, went on and wrote about her experiences but also worked as a journalist and um, as a feminist uh, and for the League of Nations. And it really gives you perspective on, on what where we're at now, especially with unfortunately another war happening in Europe mm-hmm. um, and the futility of war. So it's a very thick book. Um, there's a movie that goes with it, which is actually quite good as well. Um, but it's uh, that's my current go-to historical book right now. Oh, that sounds great. Um, okay, where can we find you, Manuela? <laughs> We've touched on it many times. Come and chat to her. Come and chat to her. Where can we find you? Yeah, and your colleagues? so so I'm the medical director at Taz IVF. Um, in we are based in Hobart predominantly, but we also have a satellite clinic in Launceston. And I work here with four other excellent um, doctors. It's a great team. It's a purpose-built lab. Your eggs and embryos don't have to travel, which uh, is another really important aspect of the IVF lab. Everything's in-house, including our operating theatre where we do all our egg collections. We're available for face-to-face consults, um, but we're doing a lot of tele consulting via Zoom and phone. Um, a lot of our patients are on the islands around um, around Tasmania and we also consult on the mainland. I do also do a little bit of work at my old clinic at Melbourne IVF where I had worked for many years before I became the medical director at Taz IVF. So I actually really like going to and fro, but my predominant haunt where I stay is down here in Hobart. So if you want to consult, just give us a ring. If I'm not available, my colleagues are really excellent and we all work together. I think when you were saying what's your go-to, for us doctors, our go-to is each other. So Mm -hmm. we work closely together. If we have a patient who needs a second opinion, uh, we often will talk to each other about that. It's all about you, the patient, getting the best outcome and that's sort of the the attitude and, and what we aim to do down here. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I have learnt so much. Great um, questions, Renee, and a few you. in there that I hadn't been asked before, so I'm very, especially your first one, so I'm very impressed. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you. you. It's been really good, and I, and I hope some of your listeners have um, have have sort of been educated and also maybe they see some possibilities or options that maybe weren't there before they started listening to this podcast. Mm, Absolutely. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Thank you so much for your time again and we'll see you in part two. 
Okay, see you in part two. Take care. Bye now. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.